So we're back in another sermon expanded. These are going to be shorter ones. They're looking at three passages. This is the first week of Advent. The Advent candle that we light each Sunday in church reflects to hope, on the theme of hope. And so our service was based around that, based around the hope that is in God coming in human flesh, Jesus appearing as man and showing and revealing God to each of us in time and space. Base that could be touched and heard, that could be asked questions of, that could be seen from a human perspective. And so that is God, that is the hope that we have, and that is the, all about Christmas God coming, the incarnation, being with us in human form. Uh, and so we think about that over the course of Advent using hope, joy, peace, love. And we thought about hope, but we're also doing a little mini-series on Genesis. You might think that we've just completed a series on Genesis when we talked about Joseph, and yes, we did. But it is important for us to think about Genesis and to think about the Old Testament and how it reflects and how it points, how it is a signpost towards Jesus. We can study the Old Testament all that we like. We can look at it. We can pick out truths from the stories within it. But if we don't think about them in terms of our Christian faith and how Christ is at the centre of that faith, then it's the, the Jewish faith that we're thinking of. We're just doing it as a as an exercise in a story. We're just trying to pick out motivations for ourselves or little motifs from any story or any book. We could do it from any piece of work then. And so I wanted over the course of Advent to go back through uh, just a couple of stories in Genesis and to think about how they point us towards Christ, what they say about him, what they reveal about him, what we can see out of these stories that will tell us about Jesus. Because the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New, but he makes himself available to us in person. There are lots of characters, there are lots of things that we can tell in the Old Testament about his nature, about who he is, about what God stands for, about what he's able to do. And yet we need to see that in Christ. And so we're looking at, at the very start again, we're looking at the creation. Again, I'm as I don't do in these, I'm not going to read through the whole of creation. You can go back and look through that. But I'm simply going to point out a few verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He then goes through this poem or this story, you can go back and listen to our Sermon Expanded uh, podcast to, to find out the different interpretations of creation, of the days and eras, of the if we need to take it literally or if we don't need to take it literally. I'm not going to do that here, but I'm going to point down to later on in that story, in that parable, in that poem, whatever way you want to call it. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. So we have this God who is there from the beginning, this God who creates all things. This story is to believe in the beginning God. There was nothing before that. There was nothing that can be dated back before him in the beginning, God. And yet in verse 26, we have this God as he creates, says, let us make man in our image. And the first interesting thing there to notice is the plural. Let us make man in our 
image after our likeness. So what can we take from that? Well, I did some looking, I did some hunting about. We There have been many attempts, and this is from a expositor's Bible commentary by Longman and Gallard. Um, on this, there have been many attempts to explain the plural forms when God says, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. Westerman summarises the explanations given for the use of the plurals under four headings. One, the plural is a reference to the Trinity. Two, the plural is a reference to God and the heavenly court of angels. Three, the plural is an attempt to avoid the idea of an immediate resemblance of humans to God and flow floor. Four, the plural is an expression of deliberation on God's part while setting out to create humankind. He then goes on to say, the third and fourth explanations are both possible within the context, but neither explanation is specifically supported by the context. It's not convincing to support the notion of deliberation since the use of the plural in that passage is motivated by the chiastic wordplay between the words, let us confuse and let us make. I'm not going to dwell on these things. They're saying three and four, both possible, but takes a little bit. It takes a little bit of a jump to get there. It then says that the singulars in verse 27, God created man in his own image, and the image of God created male and female, he created them. Rule out the second explanation, that there's a need for a reference to a heavenly court of angels, since in the immediate context humans are being said to be created in his image, with no mention of being made in the image of angels. And so we're left with number one. So it's by a process of elimination that Westerman comes to the point of saying, well, this is a reference to the Trinity. You can take that. You you might not agree with that. That's fine. There are some who... This is Leopold exposition of Genesis. There are some that explain it in the Trinitarian view, that it is the Trinity... Koenig may brush it aside with a very brief first remark to the fact that the number three cannot be expressed by the plural, yet he, like many others, labours under a misunderstanding of that view. They hold that God speaks out in the fullness of his powers and his attributes in a fashion which man could never employ. The truth of the Trinity explains this passage. Luther also says that we might deem the legitimate statement of this case and goes on to remark, therefore, what is first presented more or less dark, difficult and obscure, Christ has all made manifest and clearly commanded to preach. Again, moving to the point that it's the Trinity because this has been commanded by Jesus to preach. Um, John Calvin, the Sermon on Genesis, has a a very interesting, I'm just adding this because I think it's quite funny. Um, This point we could ask, with whom does God consult? looking at some of the views, number three and four, where he talked about the heavenly court of angels and the uh, deliberation that God talks about. He says, since Jews are perverse and as much out of ignorance as out of their evil disposition, they say that God consulted with the ground because it was to help him by giving him the substance by which to create the human body. Others say he addressed angels and using deceit to prevent us from acknowledging here the three persons which constitute God's essence. They came up with this stupid notion that it is a royal and exalted manner of speaking, as princes say, we, so-and-so. He goes on 
he says various things, but it's just quite funny. He gets quite riled up about that, which is why I find it quite funny. But we, we can't really say with any authority what this plural is, and any God time God uses plural. If we purely look at the Old Testament as a study, we can't say anything. We can come back to those four options. Some of them, I would say, if you're purely looking at this, some of them are legitimate. Could be the Trinity, could be Court of Angels, it could be, I think, more out of these four if we're purely looking at this context, it could be an attempt to avoid the idea of an immediate resemblance of humans to God. This idea of separating the image of God, he created them in male and female. It's to say that we're we're not gods, we're, we're humans, we're made from dust. And so I feel that in this context, if we're purely looking at these chapters, that could be an option. The idea of avoiding that we're a perfect resemblance of God. But... If we are in the Christian faith, if this points toward Jesus in some way, if we say that this has to speak of him in some way, if this reflects him, if our faith is the Old Testament and the New as we go into it, John captures it beautifully in John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him thing, all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that light was the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Then he goes on to say, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John goes on to say, This... This is about Jesus. This is about this word that became flesh and moved into our neighbourhood, as the message says, made his dwelling among us. The word there that is used in the Greek is this word logos, which is the term used by the Greeks to talk about the governing power behind all things. The Jews refer to it as God. We refer to it as God or the divine being. The governing power behind all things, which holds all things together, which makes sense of all things and brings meaning to all things, that Logos became flesh and moved into our area. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God. And so with our faith and knowledge and understanding of Jesus being this Logos, then we say that this plural speaks of Jesus being there at the beginning. Of Jesus being there when John, the writer, the disciple, the apostle John, as he writes this, John saw him in the flesh. And then Jesus promises, as he did to his disciples and does now to us, I am with you always, even until the end of the ages. This passage, this study of Genesis creation, Genesis 1, tells us that Jesus was there. Jesus is here and Jesus will always be beyond time, beyond our limitations, beyond anything that we can place upon him. He came in human form, but he was there from the start and we he will continue forever. That is the hope of the Christian faith. That this Jesus, who we can know and have a personal relationship, who can carry us, who can free us, who can bring us peace, who can give us all that he promises us isn't fading, isn't just gradually dying out. He was there at the beginning. He was there on earth at a specific time and a place. 
and he will always be here with us. So creation teaches us that simply by saying the plural, God speaks to us and John tells us that this logos, this governing power behind all things, this Jesus was with God and was God in the beginning. And yet he has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. He had seen his glory and we can see that glory too. That's what Genesis tells us about Jesus next week. We're going to be looking at um, Isaac, about Abraham and Isaac. And then our third passage that we look at is Joseph, which we've mentioned and we've just done recently. So that is today. Grace and peace, my brothers, and may you know the presence of Jesus with you this day.